over the years, I've heard a number of con- confessed Christians, I've heard a number of professing Christians described by others as snakes. <laughs> Maybe you've heard that too. Um, to be sure, that isn't a positive label. If someone in the church, someone you know calls you a snake, usually not a positive label. Just after, after the dictionary definition that you would expect of a long, limbless reptile, that's number one, when you go on to the second definition in the dictionary, it says this, a treacherous or deceitful person. Along these lines, fitting right in with this, we saw last time in our study previous Sunday that John the Baptist himself described the self-righteous, often condemning Jewish religious leaders as a brood of vipers. There you go. Same imagery, isn't it? The brood of vipers, Matthew 3, 7. In fact, it wasn't just, it wasn't just John, Jesus as well. In chapter 12, verse 34, and chapter 23, verse 33, Jesus repeats this same indictment. You serpents, you brood of vipers, is what he calls many of the Jewish religious leaders of his day. Now, more examples from Scripture, more examples of snakes being presented in a negative light could be provided from Scripture itself. But all of this is precisely why Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 is so stunning. Matthew 10, verse 16. Turn there if you haven't already from our Bible reading plan this last week. Let's look at this verse together. As the opening verses of this chapter make clear, let's understand where we are when Jesus is speaking here. As the opening verses of chapter 10 make clear, Jesus has called and he has appointed 12 men as apostles. What does that word mean? Not a strange word in that time. Not an unusual word, simply meant those who were sent out as official representatives, those who were authorized delegates. That's all it means. Somebody important would send somebody out, give them their stamp and say, you are, you know, I give you my authority, I give you whatever to go out and represent me there. That's what these guys were. They were apostles of Jesus, delegates of Jesus, representatives of Jesus. So not only have these men been given authority, as we read in the opening verses of this chapter, authority specifically to preach and to perform miracles, the very same things we've seen Jesus doing ever since the beginning of Matthew's gospel, after the Christmas story, right? We've seen Jesus doing the same exact thing, preaching and performing miracles to give them that authority to do that as well. But... Not only have they been given that, they've also been sent and they've been also have been sent with instructions or they're being given instructions right here for a short-term mission to their fellow Jews throughout, verse 23, take a look, throughout all the towns of Israel. Now, they won't get through all the towns of Israel, as he says. Even in their ministry after his resurrection and ascension, they won't get through all the towns of Israel before the prophesied judgment comes. 
And that came between the year 66 and 70 AD with the Roman attack on Jerusalem to put down a Jewish revolt in the land. So here he kind of lets them know, you go to the towns of Israel for this short-term mission. Later they would do that as well as we read in the book of Acts. But notice how in verse 16, notice how in verse 16 we're shifting here to a darker, more sobering perspective from Christ. Jesus tells them this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Do you have that image in your head? A group of sheep, maybe wandering through a meadow, up on the craggy cliffs, you see eyes, wolves. You hear the low rumble of the growls, not just one wolf, many wolves surrounding, sneaking up on the sheep. Have that picture in your head? Jesus said, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Oh, this is interesting, isn't it? What's really fascinating here about this verse, I don't think there's a verse like this anywhere in Scripture. What's fascinating about this verse is that Jesus is using four animals, not one, not two, not three, four different animals to describe both the disciples' recognition of and response to the fact that they will be ministering in difficult and dangerous times. Jesus is using animals to communicate that point to them. I mean, just imagine if you were his disciple and you were sitting there and he said, I'm sending you out. And he said, I'm giving you authority. And they're like, yeah, authority. Yes, Jesus. Woo, authority. I'm going to let, I'm going to, you're going to preach. Woo, we're going to preach. We're going to preach. Not just Jesus. We're going to preach. I'm going to give you power to do miracles. Woo, lay it on me, Jesus. Power to do miracles. Right? And they're ready for that. But then he says, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. Oh, no, 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 no. This doesn't work for me, Jesus. I don't like this idea. I like the other stuff that you gave me because that looks good on my resume and I can feel good about myself, right? Uh, but this whole me being sheep in the midst of wolves, no, 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 no. How about you make me like a lion in the midst of wolves? Maybe you make me like a elephant large enough that they don't want to attack me. I don't know. I mean, whatever, but not sheep. Sheep in the midst of wolves? But as you can see, are four different animals that Jesus is using. Those animals clearly are number one, sheep. Number two, wolves. Number three, serpents. And number four, doves. There's even more animals that Jesus gets into. He starts talking about sparrows later on, right? He talks about foxes later on. <laughs> you can just, it's interesting when you look at the animals, animals that Jesus uses as he teaches. I think there's something, there may be a children's storybook in that. Hmm. We'll have to think about that. So let's simply go through each of these, those animals, and, and, and think about them a little, a little bit more carefully in order to really hear what this passage is saying and then to apply to seek to apply the teaching of our king, the teaching he has given us so graciously in Matthew ten sixteen. So think about number one, sheep. Sheep. 
you know this as well as I do, people being described as sheep, that is probably the most familiar animal simile in the entire Bible. It's found in countless, countless places throughout the scriptures. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53, 6. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture, Psalm 100, verse 3. We could keep going right down the list. In fact, this imagery is used three times right here in the immediate context. Look at Matthew 9.36. Matthew 9.36, the verse that really launches us into chapter 10, describes how Jesus saw that the people were harassed and helpless like what? Sheep without a shepherd. This is why I believe that he goes on a few verses later in chapter 10. He goes on to refer to them as the lost sheep of the house of Israel in chapter 10, verse 6. But here in verse 16, it it is these newly appointed apostles. Jesus is narrowing his focus. He's getting even more specific. Who are like sheep? You are like sheep. You are like sheep. And you are specifically like sheep in all of their weakness. In all of their inability. In all of their vulnerability. In all of their susceptibility. You are like sheep. They will go out as sheep in the midst of, number two, wolves. Wolves. Back in chapter 7, verse 15. We'll put this on the screen for you. Back in chapter 7, verse 15... As he's finishing that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus issued this warning to his followers. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Wolves. Is that who Jesus is warning them about here, these false prophets? No, not exactly. Who is he talking about? Who are labeled wolves here? We'll look at chapter 10. In the subsequent verses, chapter uh, 10, verses 17 through 25, we get an answer to that question. Who are the wolves he has in mind here? Look at verse 17. Beware of who? Men. Beware of men. What kind of men? The ones who will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors. You will be dragged before kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Again, think about what the disciples' reaction might be. They, they heard about this mission to the towns of Israel, and they thought, oh, we, can, we can do this. We've seen Jesus do this, right? We'll go in, we'll go into the synagogue maybe, we'll go into the town square, we'll talk to people along the way, we'll tell them about Jesus. But, whoa, what's happening here? We're going to be flogged in the synagogue? We're going to be dragged into courts? We're going to be appearing before powerful people, standing, having to give a defense for Christ in front of the upper crust, the power brokers of our society. Wow, this is starting to sound really daunting, Jesus. These are the men who will do that, right? But even if if you continue down, verse 21, even a person's brother and or father... Even their own children can, according to verse 21, act like wolves. 
How can those closest to you act like wolves? By calling for disciples to be, verse 21, put to death as those who are hated. Look at the language of that verse. As verse 23 reveals, not if, but when they persecute you. When they persecute you. For as Jesus explains in verse 25, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, another name for Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? Are we of the family of Jesus, brothers and sisters? We are. We're part of his household, aren't we? He's our elder brother. We look to the Father with him and through him by God's grace. We will be maligned. We have been. We will be. We, will con- we, we are. We will continue to be maligned, as Jesus says here. Of course, we know from the rest of the New Testament that this is the case. Such persecution was not limited to this short-term mission that Jesus was sending them out on in Matthew chapter 10. The book of Acts, in fact, describes many places where these same men, these apostles, suffered for Christ. We studied Acts, didn't we, uh, a number of weeks ago, and we saw some of those instances and how they reacted in godliness to what they were going through. Even Paul, who would later become an apostle of Jesus, even he warned the churches about wolves in their very midst when he was talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Beware of those wolves, he said, from among you shall arise wolves. So that reality of wolves out there and in here, that reality is simply confirming the importance of the command then that Jesus gives them in verse 16 when he points them to number three, serpents. Sheep, wolves, serpents. Number three, serpents. Those snakes were often used in the ancient world to represent what we might call poisonous people. We still use the word today in that very way. They were also thought of as crafty, clever, or shrewd. In fact, when it describes in Genesis the serpent that the Lord God had made who was there and describes him as crafty, the word has no moral overtone. It's neutral. It's used in positive ways. The same exact Hebrew word is used in positive ways throughout the Old Testament. So that's interesting to us that we, we connect those, that, that attribute there with this idea of the serpent. And that's the point that Jesus is making here about snakes. Those snakes are not clever like a person might be clever or calculating. They are very hard to pin down or catch, aren't they? They're shrewd in that way. They often operate under the radar, you know? My one, my one uh, encounter with a rattlesnake was on Camelback Mountain, and I was coming down in an early morning. It was cold. Snakes like to come out when it's cold, and if they have a warm rock, if there's any sunshine, that's where they can kind of warm their bodies up. So I was coming down, and I put my foot out like this as I was coming over a ledge, and I heard that rattle, and by the grace of God, I stopped immediately. And my foot was hanging like this in the air, and I put it back down, and I climbed around, and sure enough, right below me was a rattlesnake, ready. He had sensed my vibration coming down the trail, getting ever closer to him, and he let me know that he was there. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, right? Thank you, God, for your beautiful design of that rattle on that particular 
snake. But they often operate under the radar. You don't always see them coming. They're quiet in that way. Even though they are small, they also know how to use their, their God-given defenses, their attributes in a disproportionate way. Right? A viper latching onto an elephant's foot. I think it can bring down that elephant after a while with, that, with the venom that it has in its fangs. So all of these things uh, probably led to this idea of seeing snakes as clever, as crafty, as shrewd. And in the same way, what Jesus is telling us here, telling his disciples, is to be shrewd in a dangerous, sin-serving world like this one. You need to be shrewd like snakes. This is why in Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, the opening verses of Luke 16, make a note of that if you're not familiar with that passage. Through that parable there, he tells the the parable that he announces there, Jesus, in essence, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Same word in Greek, phronimos. And phronimos here is a, is a lesser used word. It's not just wisdom. Uh, wisdom is sophia in Greek. Sophia or sophos. Like a sophomore in high school is a sophos moron, which means a wise fool. That's what a sophomore is, a wise fool. He's had just enough of school in ninth grade to think he's all that, but he's really still a fool. <laughs> So, Sophia or Sophos is not the word. So, wise, when it says that in the ESV, wise as a serpent, I don't think that's a good translation. Serpents aren't really wise as we think of wise. They are shrewd, though. That's the kind of wisdom that they have. This word phronimos is here in Luke chapter 16. Jesus commends through the parable the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That's not just an observation there in Luke 16, 8. What Jesus is saying is it shouldn't be this way. We should be more shrewd than they. Believers should be more shrewd than unbelievers. His sheep should be snake-like in this way, to mix these metaphors. (laughs) His sheep should be snake-like in this very way. You see, when we think about words, for us as English speakers, we think about words like crafty or calculating or shrewd. These terms for us are usually associated with shady people, or as the the kids today would say, someone who's sus, right? Someone who's sus, or people who, by kind of subsequently, make very morally questionable choices. That's what we think of when we hear words like crafty or calculating or shrewd. But the concept that Jesus is describing here is far more neutral than that. Like I mentioned in the Old Testament, he's talking about a kind of practical wisdom, what we might call something like street smarts. That's exactly what Jesus is describing here through these words based on the old Hebrew concept as well. It is that kind of street smarts that should ultimately be judged, we judge it by one's motives, one's means, and one's ends. To practice it, not just to say, well, he was being crafty, yeah, but what was his motive, what was his means, and what was his ends in that craftiness? That's the neutrality that we're talking about with these kinds of ideas. 
It's the very thing his disciples need in a world where they will be like sheep in the midst of wolves. So on one hand, what does he mean here by this? Be wise as serpents. On one hand, he's simply telling them, do not be naive. I've told you enough about yourselves and about human nature that you should not be naive. Please do not be gullible. He's telling them, do not be gullible, do not be simple-minded about what it's like out there and about what's really happening in here. You have no excuse to be naive. Be as wise as serpents. So on one hand, he's simply telling them not to be naive. On the other hand, I believe he's also encouraging them in this verse to make very careful, calculated decisions in light of what they've received about God, their relationship with Him, and eternity. Calculate. Be shrewd when you know what you have, when you know how things are. Be shrewd like a snake. Now, what might that look like in real life? Well, examples are right here in the context, right? We're always using the context to understand Scripture. We're not just pulling verses, ripping verses out of Scripture and running around with them and saying, I claim this verse, I claim this verse. Well, we need to make sure we know what it means before we claim it. I think you'd want to do that, <laughs> right? So look at the context. What does it tell us here? Well, verse 17, they should be shrewd. They should not be naive in their dealings with men, with governors, with kings, even their own family members. They should not be surprised when these things happen. They are going to happen. They should not be surprised by the hostility. Jesus has already told them and explained why these people are hostile. So when they are persecuted, verse 23, here's another example, verse 23. When they are persecuted, they should be wise about living to fight another day by doing what? By fleeing to the next town. Yeah, some of you might think, oh, I'm going to be a martyr for Jesus. And in some cases, people were martyrs for Jesus. But in many cases, even in the book of Acts, they said, you know what? It's, it's, it's much wiser to, to, to live to fight another day and for me to escape like Paul did, right? When he came down in the basket on the side of the, of the city. And there are other examples as well. So there's another example of being uh, shrewd in this way. Verse 23. Verse 26. Instead of fearing their persecutors... They should shrewdly discern the real and eternal danger of verse 28, choosing to serve men rather than God. It's not shrewd to cower before men who can only do so much to you and therefore orient your life towards pleasing others, people, human beings, when there is a God who is over all things and He can cast you body and soul into hell. It's not shrewd to make calculations that go against that. Like if you know that knowledge, he's telling them, wise up, be aware of what's really happening here. As those who sought, verse 25, to be like their teacher, these men could also look to Jesus and they would look to Jesus in the coming weeks and months as they followed him. They would look to Jesus for an example of this kind of snake-like shrewdness because he perfectly embodied this kind of snake-like shrewdness. A good example of this is Matthew 22, verses 17 through 21. You guys are familiar with this passage. Most of you are. If you're not, get ready. It's a beautiful passage. Tell us, said the Pharisees, tell us then what you think. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness in inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Wow, what a shrewd response, right? What a very shrewd response. Jesus Jesus could have answered any number of ways, right? If you wanted a dissertation about the spheres of authority in terms of political life, religious life, anything like that, Jesus could stand there for five hours and give you the most concise, perfect description, perfect understanding, with 87 illustrations, practical illustrations. He could give you all of that to help you understand this point. He could call them to account for the impurity, the malice that they had in their own heart. He could list for them, based on the insight, his divine knowledge of their own hearts. He could do all of that. He doesn't. He keeps it very simple. He shrewdly answers as he does here. He would not get entangled in their political priorities. He would not take sides. He would not enable their malicious agenda. Like a snake, he cleverly slipped out of their snare here, while at the same time providing them with a very important principle about honoring God in different spheres of authority. Now, the apostles learned from his example. They watched him. That's just one of many examples where he was very, very clever in the way that he handled, right? Right? You, uh, uh, whose authority, by, by whose authority did John practice his ministry? And they knew they were caught there, right? They couldn't say, well, if, they, oh, if we say of gods, then he's going to say, then why didn't you listen to them? If we say he's not of gods, then everyone's going to be upset with us because everyone loved John the Baptist. And they didn't even say anything in response to him. He just shut them down. With one question, he just shut them down. That's it. Very shrewd response. Very clever response. He didn't get tangled up in these arguments with them. The apostles learned from his example in how they planned, in what they valued, in the words they used, in the face of opposition, with a clear understanding of human nature, including their own nature, and with an eye to eternity, these men were called to be as shrewd as serpents to the glory of God. But knowing human nature, knowing human nature, Jesus didn't stop there. He went on in 1016 to also talk about one more category, one more animal. Number four, doves. Doves. Jesus knew full well that a call like this, a command like this, instruction like these, he knew full well that this call to be shrewd or clever or wise like a serpent would need to be balanced out. That it would need a built-in corrective. Why? Because sometimes in our desire to be clever to the glory of God, sin tempts us instead to be pridefully crafty to our own glory. 
If Jesus calls you to be shrewd, he knows that if he doesn't temper that, it will slip right into pride-filled craftiness for the glory of man, not the glory of God. When we look around this world and when we see or we feel the teeth of those wolves, how do we want to respond? How do we want to instinctually respond to those wolves? Well, we can be very easily tempted to compromise in the name of snake-like cleverness. Oh, I'm being clever like Jesus said. I'm being shrewd like Jesus said. Don't you see what I'm doing here? We bear our fangs, don't we? So what, what does this mean? Well, it means we adopt worldly methods to accomplish godly ends. Or we link arms with and justify unrighteous people in the name of a righteous cause. Or we water down the truth in the name of relevance in the name of cultural cleverness. This is precisely why Jesus makes the two parts of this instruction inseparable. Do you see that? Inseparable. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We can never talk about one without talking about the other. They go together. So take a look at this statement. As these new apostles were being sent out by Jesus, they needed to guard themselves against compromise by tempering snake-like shrewdness with an absolute commitment to dove-like innocence. Let me say that again. They needed to guard themselves against compromise by tempering snake-like shrewdness with an absolute commitment to dove-like innocence. As one of these men, Peter, would later write, as he was older, he said this to the churches that he, to whom he wrote. He said, keep your conduct, conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Brothers and sisters, in a spiritually dangerous world like the one that we live in, like the one they lived in, which of us does not need to hear this instruction? Which of us does not need to hear our master teaching here in Matthew 10, 16? I can tell you this about myself. Too often, I know I am willfully naive. Willfully naive. If that even makes sense. I am willfully naive when it comes to my own weaknesses, to the emptiness of worldly solutions offered to me, to the subtle seduction of daily compromise, and to all the spiritual snares that our enemy puts in front of us. I am willfully naive. I know better, and yet I walk in that kind of foolishness. Unlike the dishonest manager of Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, too often I am not shrewd with everything with which I've been entrusted by God. Everything with which I've been entrusted by my master. And by shrewd, I mean that too often I use what I have been given to secure today's pleasures, not in light of my eternal security, not in light of my eternal welfare. It shouldn't be that way. And when I do that, and when I am this way, guess what I am? 
I am easy prey for the wolves. Think about it. In a dangerous neighborhood, someone who has street smarts, someone you would describe in that way, what do they understand? They understand who can and cannot be trusted. They understand, they know the agendas out there in the community. They are acquainted with the schemes. They're familiar with the lies that have currency in their community, in that neighborhood. They speak the language. They know how to get things done in a way that understands the game without playing the game. That's shrewdness. Or let, let's let Paul say the exact same thing in his own words. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 7.31. He calls disciples to this. Let those who deal with the world, that's all of us, let those who deal with the world deal as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Why are you investing yourself so much in what's going on out there? Why are you clinging to what will be fire and ashes one day, will be gone. You must deal with the world. Your Lord commands it. You cannot navigate in this world without dealing with the world, but you deal with it as if you had no dealings with it. Brothers and sisters, if we as the church functioned in that way, our light would shine so much more brilliantly and not be so tarnished by all the ugliness and mud slinged around us, right? All of it. This is what Jesus is saying. These are the kinds of street smarts that we need. Kingdom street smarts. Brothers and sisters, we desperately need to have these spiritual street smarts. Spiritually, ask yourself this. Do you know who you can and cannot trust out there spiritually? Are you well-versed in the agendas? Are you well-versed in the schemes? Are you well-versed in the lies? You need historical perspective too because once you look back in history and you know history, you can spot these things coming from a mile away even though they're in a shiny new package. It's all the same. There's nothing new under the sun. So when you have that, when you're equipped in that way, if your shrewdness, spiritual shrewdness, is fueled and informed by such things, For example, what does it look like to be spiritually, biblically shrewd when it comes to material possessions? When it comes to cultural priorities and pressures that we feel? When it comes to social media? When it comes to political engagement? When it comes to technological innovation? When it comes to consumeristic conformity? What does it look like to be biblically shrewd, spiritually shrewd? Do you know how to be spiritually shrewd with your phone? Do you know how to be spiritually shrewd with what you watch or what you read or what you listen to? How about in your relationships? Remember, even those who are closest to you, according to verse 21, can act like wolves. The wolves are out there. The wolves are everywhere, according to Scripture. But let us be careful in humility. We know that our shrewdness is given by the Word of God comes through the Spirit of God. 
right? Chapter 10, verse 20. Look at chapter, look at verse 20 of chapter 10, if you ha- still have it open. It's what he's telling them. I'm calling you to be shrewd, but don't stand before governors and kings on your own cleverness, thinking that you're going to talk your way out of this or that. But trust that the spirit of your father will be there for you. He will provide what you need. We know our shrewdness is spirit given. We need to cultivate this kind of wisdom, but never take pride in our cleverness. That's how we guard ourselves. Our confidence must remain ultimately in the shrewdness of the cross of Christ. The shrewdness of the cross that Jesus, knowing his enemy's tactics, turned his suffering and his murder into the very things that defeated and will one day destroy the devil. Talk about clever. Wow. Shrewdly, he used death to defeat death. Now, let me finish with just two interconnected truths that make sense of this shrewdness for us. Number one, and I'll let you kind of think through these and maybe talk in life groups about these. Number one, what makes, helps us make sense of this kind of shrewdness, snake-like shrewdness? Number one, our eternal security in the gospel. Right? The promises that are yours and now should, should give perspective to your entire life that it's not just about living for today. And it's not about what you can do and whether you're going to make it in the end, but about what Christ has done, what he's completed. And number two, our commitment to mission. Our commitment to mission. Jesus speaks these words to men who were ready to step out the front door for his namesake. These words do not apply to you if you're hiding out this morning. They don't. They are for those who are committed to the mission of Christ, who are ready to serve as his disciples, to be out in the world, right? Who does Jesus call the serpent-like shrewdness? Not those who are hiding out in order to remain unstained from the world. He's talking to those who are going out on mission in the midst of the world, in the midst of wolves. So that's our call is to say, boy, this, this really heart checks me in terms of where am I at? I need this kind of shrewdness, not simply to kind of remain unstained. And hopefully, like, I'm like the talent that the person buried and said, well, I'm going to bury myself. And then when Jesus comes back, I'll pop out of the dirt and, here I am, Jesus. Look, I'm not stained. I was buried this whole time, right? Up in a monastery somewhere. I was, I was hiding. No, no. Jesus gives us the privilege of making spiritual profit for his kingdom's sake. And that's our delight and joy to be able to, to talk about our Lord, to serve our King and however He wants to use us. But when we go out there, we don't have to be afraid. Our King has already told us. He's, he's going to give us this. He's called us to shrewdness. He's going to give us the Spirit to help us, to empower us to serve Him in this way. Brothers and sisters, may God be greatly glorified as we follow our Master's example in all of these ways we've looked at this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let me pray for myself and for you as we turn to Him now in light of this word.